You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, daring, dapper, darling, dames and darths. Welcome to Good Job Brain, your weekly quiz show and offbeat trivia podcast. This is episode 69, and of course, I am your humble host, Karen, and we are your Voltron of vocal voracious volunteers. Ooh, I'm Colin. I'm Dana. I'm Chris. Did you say Darth? Darth? Yeah, what's a Darth? Oh, as in like Vader. Vader. Oh, okay. Maul. Yeah. Sidious. Oh, Got it. Okay. Yeah, every okay. garden variety Darth. Yeah. Sure, sure. <laughs> you know, a Darth. Yeah. And without further ado, let's jump into our general trivia segment, Pop Quiz Hotshot. And here I have a random trivial pursuit card, and you guys have your buzzers. Let's jump into answering some questions. All right. Blue Wedge for Geography. What two Ivy League universities are located in New York State? Chris. Cornell? Ding, 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 ding. Right. Um, oh, Brown? No. No. It's in Rhode, Rhode Island. Island. What is the other Ivy League? Oh, it's come on. NY- oh, it's no, Columbia. 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 Oh, Columbia. Yeah. New York yeah. City. <laughs> All right. Pink wedge for pop culture. Oh, boy. On the cover of Nirvana's album Nevermind, what is the underwater baby reaching for? Oh, Everybody. A My dollar, dollar bill. A dollar on a, bill. On a, on a fish hook, right? right? Yeah. yeah. A yep. donut. Oh, wait. I'm sorry. That <laughs> That's was weird Al. Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Yellow wedge. Who was the target of a CIA assassination plot that included a booby-trapped seashell and contaminated cigar? That, Colin. Uh, I believe that was Fidel Castro. Yes. Yeah. That <laughs> sounds crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I didn't know about the booby-trapped seashell. I haven't heard of the seashell. Yeah, I think I've heard of the exploding or poison or whatever cigar. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Purple Wedge. What short-lived magazine was co-founded by Dave Eggers? Oh, wait. Short-lived. He Doesn't he do McSweeney's? Yeah. But that's still around. Mm. Not McSweeney's. That is still around. Yeah. Was he part I've, of Spy? I've never heard of this. What uh, is it? Might. Might? Yeah. Huh. M-I-G-H-T. Huh. Hmm. Hmm. Who knew? Okay. All right. Green Wedge for Science. What sign language speaking gorilla famously befriended and cared for a kitten in the 80s? Dana. Coco. Coco. It was so cute. It was just her birthday the other day. Oh, really? Yeah. Coco. All right, last question, Orange Wedge. What is the primary ingredient in tofu? Oh, everybody. Soy. Soybeans. 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 Soybeans work. Okay. Good job, Brains. What a weird card. A weird, weird card. <laughs> Tofu to Nirvana to Gorillas. Mm. Yeah. My favorite. Exploding. It's kind of 90s-ish. It was an exploding right? cigar? Uh, it was a poison, Contam- right? Oh, okay. Contaminated Oh, contaminated. Cigar. Uh, I had heard uh, exploding in the oh, past, okay. but contaminated kind of, makes yeah. more sense. Yeah. Yeah. Get smart. It seemed like a get smart. It plot. does. Yeah, you're yeah. right. Very get smart, right. So we decided that this week we're going to dedicate the whole episode to music. Everything from old instruments to current pop music to secrets to other facts and uh hopefully you guys will enjoy let's let's go on a journey oh back back way before even the 1970s back to (laughs) what maybe the beginning of human history there's a cave in germany it's called 
whole fells, which means hollow rock, oh. which means cave. <laughs> I, I was like, the hole I fell in. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> that would be funny. Yeah. But this, this cave in recent years has been a literal treasure trove for archaeologists. Uh, in 2008, you may have actually seen this. A few years back, it was a statue called the Venus of Whole Fells. And it was this, it was a, basically a, a statue of a very, it was very small, handheld, Figural art of a busty woman with, with all of her various lady parts very <laughs> clearly defined. Sure. Your reaction is very <laughs> right. small and busty. How yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and hell. <laughs> radiocarbon dating put it at about anywhere between 35 to 45 thousand years old and people are saying this is basically like this is this is right now the earliest known piece of figural art Mm. ever a mere stone's throw i mean just like a couple of like feet away from this uh more recently in this same cave in germany they found the oldest known musical instrument uh, a flute oh hmm. sounds like a happening club in there right? <laughs> <laughs> a, lot, a lot happening in this case yeah. music Whoa. music and figural artwork one of the hypotheses that's out there is that humans traveled along the danube river east to west from asia into europe and that that's how humans got into europe very debated hypothesis, but this cave is located along that oh, path. Oh, got it. So it's said that the findings in this cave, the extremely old early human artifacts, kind of support that hypothesis. Hmm. So this is what the BBC uh, said about uh, the flute. It was was made from a vulture's wing bone. A griffin vulture's wing bone. Oh, whoa. Um, 20 centimeters long with five finger holes and V-shaped notches on the end, which they assume the player would blow into. Mm. And the team that found it said this to the BBC at the time, music could have contributed to the maintenance of larger social networks and thereby perhaps have helped facilitate the demographic and territorial expansion of modern humans relative to a culturally more conservative Neanderthal population. Mm. So music... People, humans, all getting together and playing music with each other might have fostered more bonds. And so being able to play vulture bone flutes might have been what caused humans to get up one over Neanderthals and cause Neanderthals to go extinct. Take that, Neanderthals. Wouldn't you think that the first musical instrument would be more like percussion based? Well, they probably, well, I mean, mm. if you want to get super technical really about it, the first musical instrument would have been like the human voice, probably. Right. Well, yeah, um, and then and then rocks being banged together. Um, but this is the first like intentional, it, yeah, like item that was created just you know, to just make, just to make music, or yeah. that survived this long. That's true, right? Yeah, because you could probably just beat on rocks with sticks. They might even put hides across like a hollowed out log or something. But it, it's all organic material. That's true. And it goes away, it deteriorates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's true. That's a yeah. good point. Well, let's go from music made among rocks to rock music. <laughs> Yeah, I need a laugh track sometimes. So So we're all fans of the Beatles. We've talked about them before, I think, uh, many times on the show and in Pub Quiz. Um, If you can study one band. Yes, if you you have to study one band for Pub Quiz, right. Quintessential Pub Quiz band. Know the Beatles. All the little secrets, the names, (laughs) all that stuff. So uh, one of my favorite Beatles songs uh, is Rain. You guys know the song Rain? Mm. Um, No. It was a single. It was an advanced single off of Revolver. So it came out in 
1966, and uh, it was a non-album single, meaning it, it only existed as a single, uh, but it was from the same sessions as Revolver. And, uh, you know, this was a period in time when the Beatles were feeling particularly experimental with a lot of their music. <laughs> and John Lennon in particular, out of the Beatles, was really interested in just new, funky ways of recording. And one of the claims to fame for Rain, the song, is that it is considered generally one of the first rock songs to use backmasking. And do you guys know what backmasking is? Recording yeah, something yeah. and then playing it backwards? Yeah, more or less. But oh. yeah, it's essentially recording something and then adding it onto a track backward. So that when oh. you play the track, oh, so like, it's... Like, like yeah. the Missy Elliott song. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's, a, yeah. that's a very well-known example is the Missy Elliott song. Okay. During uh, the sessions for Revolver and, and Rain in particular, they had been playing around with uh, backward instrumentation. So John Lennon, the story goes, by, by his own telling, um, it was at the end of a day, he was listening to some of the recording sessions and he put the loop from Rain in and either accidentally or maybe semi on purpose played it backwards and was just really enthralled with the way it sounded. He's like, mm. this is just great. It's funky. It's something new. Uh, so let me just play a little snippet of the song here for you. So this is uh, the last few seconds of Rain. Interesting. It sounds like they're singing in English. Doesn't sound backwards. Right, it right. It just sounds weird, but it doesn't sound like... Yeah. Now, I've gone ahead and reversed it, oh. by which I mean played it forward. Would you guys like to hear that? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. All right. So that was pretty much it, kind of just a little throwaway fun effect, but is considered the first example of a rock song huh. putting back masking I've in. I've heard of this trick before, but I didn't know that it was this song was the first one. People, you know, certainly uh, avant-garde artists had sort of experimented with music and things, but this is sort of the first pop Mainstream, rock song. Yeah. Right. So flash forward a couple years, and uh, if you're a Beatles fan or a trivia fan, you may be aware of the Paul is Dead conspiracy theory, which was an <laughs> idea that got in the heads of some fans that Paul McCartney had been killed in a car accident yes. and it was replaced by a fake Paul, an mm. imposter yeah. Paul. And more specifically, the theory was that the Beatles were dropping hints about this in their songs. Mm. And, so, and album yeah, artwork album covers, and yeah. yeah right, everywhere. right, right. The fact that uh, Paul is not wearing shoes walking across the street on the that cover of Abbey this. Road. Right, or that he's turned, he's the only one turned away from you on Sgt. Peppers and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right. And one of the really strong pieces of evidence that people latched onto is that off of Revolution 9, you can hear back masking versions of Turn Me On Dead Man, mm. Turn Me On Dead Man, which is supposed to be John Lennon's, you know, sort of admission to the listeners that Paul is dead. <laughs> and uh, you can go find the sample, and I think it's a great example of if you want to hear it, you oh, can yeah. hear, You'll hear it. Right. Yeah. And the Beatles, of course, Paul was not dead. They denied this. So this was sort of one of the first examples, though, of people starting to look for sort of nefarious messaging Indeed. in records. Satanic mm. messages. Satanic messaging. So that that's what I would like to talk to you guys about. Oh, is yay. The, I don't know if... <laughs> yay, satanic messages. Fad isn't even the right word, but the, the mania that hysteria. swept... Hysteria. Hysteria, thank you. The hysteria over 
hidden satanic messages that swept America in the late 70s and early 80s. This is, you know, moving into the late 70s now, this was when people started really getting interested in subliminal advertising, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, and particularly there's a guy named Brian Key, and he's the guy you've probably seen who was convinced that the word sex appeared in ads everywhere. Mm. You know, his idea (laughs) is that if you put the word sex hidden in an ad for soda or crackers, that people will form a subliminal association and they'll want to buy that brand. No one legitimately really believes this who's actually studied it. They've not been able to show any uh, connection between subliminal messaging, whether it is or isn't there. But it is a good example of you see what you want to see. In the 70s, there were a lot of conservative Christian groups and conservative parents groups that were starting to get concerned of hidden evil messages in rock music. And in particular, there was a DJ named Michael Mills, and he went on a crusade to convince people that Stairway to Heaven, okay, uh-huh. the yes, famous classic. Led Zeppelin classic sure. song, this was his sort of his uh, his token great example of hidden satanic messages, uh-huh. that Stairway to Heaven, if you played it backwards, there was a, a patch that said, here's to my sweet Satan. And let me play this for you guys very, <laughs> very quickly. And here's the segment uh, in question played forward. Yes, Oh, that's my favorite part of the song. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, perfectly normal, right? All right, so here's that segment reversed. Uh, so in his ears, in his ears, it is as clear as day that well, they are singing "Here's to my sweet Satan." Sure, and when you combine it with what the words are that it's intended to be, you will hear that because of the power of suggestion of the words being there. Right, right. It's like by chance. I don't know. Well, yeah. so so uh, Michael Mills and there was another big figure. There was Pastor Gary Greenwald of California, and they basically took up the torch for spreading the message that rock music, wow. this insidious message, is getting inside our children heads mm-hmm. and they would go on tours and speaking tours uh, Pastor Greenwald would hold record burnings you know you have just like a mass oh. record burning and come out and just trash those evil satanic uh, records this this wasn't just sort of a fringe belief I mean this really bubbled up it's bad I wish it were true because it would be awesome to embed secret codes in music like if you yeah. could say words forwards and backwards and they had different meanings but it's not <laughs> true it's completely no. impossible to actually do that I right. wish I mean um, Completely. If, if we could design language again, maybe we would have done that, where you could say say whatever. one thing yeah. backwards and would say one thing forwards. It's like yeah. an auditory that's palindrome. No, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> Wait. So that's my question. Are there any auditory palindromes that the way that you say it is the same word? I'm sure. I don't know any. I though. wonder if it works as Poop. the same way as yeah, rotor. Yeah, there you go. You know what? Would it though? Because there's like a different yeah, it, noise at the yeah, beginning. That it, no one had really done any serious research on the two things of like one. Can your brain actually understand something that's being said backward? Right. And then, and then two, if your brain does understand it, can it influence behavior? Then, right, yeah. right, exactly. I need to try poop. You should. It's a lot of fun. You should just, just play it backwards. Here, here I am. Okay, I'm going to yeah. say poop normal. Poop. I'm going to insert backwards poop. Oof. Here it is. <laughs> In the 1980s, they undertook an actual 
study of this phenomenon. Can we play backward encoded messages for people and are they intelligible? And what they found is no. It's they, <laughs> yeah. they it is they did find that it's just a very human phenomenon to want to make things intelligible. And yeah. that, as you yeah. say, you can kind of hear some words in there. What they also found though is that people uh, would only hear the supposed satanic messages if they were primed ahead of time. Oh, they would right. only hear them if they said, "All right, we want you to listen and see if you can hear this." But basically, it was no better than chance otherwise if they heard anything yep. and then secondarily they found no influence of hearing these messages on your actual behavior here's where it gets just crazy for me now i want to remind you all right this is this is 1980s okay the state legislature of california passed a bill that what? stated distributing material that contains backward messages without public notice is an invasion of privacy no. and Way. opened up the distributor to lawsuits. This is the state of California legislature oh passed goodness. this bill. So I know Prince has a song, Darling Nikki, and at the end of it, there's a section he's mm. singing backwards. Did they have to put out a notice saying that there's backwards I music? I guess he would have been arrested in California. <laughs> well, I'm sure. Like, but by all the research I can do, it seems that there were actually no teeth to any of these various mm -hmm. pieces of legislation. But, you know, I mean, like a lot of politicians, you want to grandstand and pass them. But still, the state of Arkansas, alright, this is this one This one goes even further. In Arkansas, they passed a bill, and now this is verbatim. They had to place stickers on records and tapes that say warning, this record contains backward masking which may be perceptible at a subliminal level when the record is played forward. That makes me want to buy it. <laughs> yeah, I think like a lot of things, like if all you're going to do is just, yeah, if you make something seem forbidden, kids are going to want to have it more. Yeah. Uh, in the one like happy little twist to this story, again, so this was passed by the Arkansas uh, legislature. It went to the governor's desk for approval. And it was vetoed and sent back by Governor Bill Clinton. Oh, wow. Yes, yeah. in a moment of clarity. So uh, thank you, Bill, at, at a 30-year remove. You know what's funny is... Because he'd be is, like, what yeah. is this? Because he loved Led Zeppelin, yeah. probably. But Gore's wife was responsible for... Yes, yes the, that's right. The, the tipper sticker. The Parents Resource Music Council, mm -hmm. which started in 1985 and was very, very heavily born out of this, this hysteria. Mm -hmm. Like, they came into being in one of their first first goals was seeing are there really hidden satanic messages in our uh, in our rock music and yeah. people are bored you know oh. people are bored and maybe a little uh, they want to help you protect yeah. you it died down for a bit they said one of the reasons that the the hysteria died down was because as people moved away from records into cds it wasn't as easy to play to things play backward yeah. <laughs> and there are people out there who still really really believe that the church of satan is actively uh working with rock bands to put their messages in their songs i wonder how much that sponsorship is yeah no yeah no advertising <laughs> yeah, in the pocket of big of Satan. <laughs> so mm -hmm. the moral of the story is you hear what you want to hear. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. That's true. I promise you guys I am going to talk about music, but I'm, it's going to be a, a weird twisty way of, of getting there. But I'm going to start off by asking you guys uh, this question. Do you know what the Ferris wheel is called in some Latin American countries, like in Costa Rica and Chile? I do not. I don't. No. Some people call it the Rueda de Chicago, which means Chicago hmm. wheel. Really? Okay. And the reason why is because the original Ferris wheel made by Mr. Ferris, George Ferris, sure. the first Ferris wheel was at the Chicago World's Fair. Ah, okay. And that was in 
1893, or it was also called the World's Columbian Exposition. It was to celebrate right, the, right. the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus' arrival into the New World. Really, really big deal. And I think the idea, to me, of a World's Fair is is pretty awesome. Just these long-running expos featuring different countries, showcasing culture and history and exoticism, architecture, and lots of like innovation and vision of the future, and a lot of notable firsts. This fair, this particular fair was so big in scale and so grand that it easily far exceeded all the other world fairs at that point. And it really became a symbol of America and you know, <laughs> that time. So in addition to the Ferris wheel debut, uh, Juicy Fruit Gum also oh. debuted. Uh-huh. Uh, Pabst Blue Ribbon, (laughs) PBR, debuted at the World's Fair. In a lot of these fairs, they have international pavilions, right? Different countries have their showcase. Um, So Spain, they had a showcase. They recreated the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, the ships. Uh There was also an Egyptian attraction called A Street in Cairo. You know, so they had uh, snake charmers and music and dancers, and, and this is where belly dancing was introduced to the world ah. even though belly dancers were not really egyptian at all right but but you know when you watch cartoons you see snake charmers and stuff they play songs on the flu and the snake comes yeah, yeah, yeah. out that song there's that song oh, yeah. that quintessential dee, snake charmer that was improvised a man named Saul oh, Bloom, really? yes who was running the show later became an american politician he was said to have come up with that quintessential snake charmer really? song yep uh, and he didn't copyright it so it went into public domain uh, that's why you hear it everywhere of course yeah uh, a place in france for the naked ladies dance i read that in my research but i was like i have no idea what There's this record is oh yeah it on the playground they just a sing place it. in france where the naked ladies dance uh, yeah i don't know the rest i did the next refrain i always heard was and the men don't care they just throw their underwear <laughs> Which didn't make sense oh, to man. me, but like you don't you don't oh, question on you know, on the playground. Listen, when you're yeah. getting laughs on the playground, yeah. Like, yeah. you just yeah, you're... it's a little bit naughty. It's <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah. Right, yeah, right, Go right, right. Exactly. Yeah. And that song was made famous because of the Chicago's World Fair. Wow. Mm. Yeah. In in addition to all of this, all the spectacle and the marvel, there was a lot of um, idea exchange and seminars, and it's not just flashy stuff. This was a turn of century, and people and experts were really involved in showcasing new ideas and new methodology, including the idea of education for children. So I want to introduce to you guys a very special lady. Her name is Patty Hill, and she's one of the key figures in shaping the foundation for um, the modern kindergarten we have today in America. Hmm. Um, she was an educator and she was at the Chicago World's Fair representing her branch of experimental schooling for young kids. And she was uh, the principal for the Louisville Experimental Kindergarten School. So what was the big difference between her you know, method and, and previous methods? She really saw importance of the idea of playing and pretend play in mm. classrooms. <laughs> To facilitate learning. She felt that children needed to socialize and free play to develop kind of and explore the world around them. So, you know, when you go see like in a kindergarten classroom, you see like toy cars and play money and Mm. little kitchen sets and big blocks and stuff like it's thanks to her and thanks to her push. She thought that maybe having pretend play that Mm. kids will work together more they'll cooperate right. um, yeah. they'll Rather move than just around them down and exactly right. they'll move around more and she also saw the importance of of using songs and music 
in classrooms. So Patty and her sister Mildred was also a kindergarten teacher, and they came up with songs. And one notable song they coined was called <laughs> "Good Morning to All," and they would yes. they would sing this song, a simple greeting song to <laughs> welcome students to class every day. Now you may know the song, of course, under a different name. <laughs> you may and, know the melody a little bit better. Yep. Yeah. And this is definitely the most performed song and most recognized song in the entire world.、Uh, Can you guess what song it is? Happy, Happy birthday, birthday song! Yay! Now, unlike、um, the dee 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 guy,、uh, Patty Hill and her sister actually got it. Copyrighted.、Yeah. So yes, "Good Morning to All" in fact was published in songbooks, but、mm. the trail gets muddy、uh, in terms of when the lyrics "Happy Birthday to You" right,、um, right. was、uh, revamped. By the mid 1930s, the birthday song had appeared in Broadway musicals and TV shows,、mm. radio shows, and it became a thing. And of course, this point was when Jessica Hill, the third Hill sister. Kind of sprang up and filed a copyright suit. Oh, really? You're like, wait a minute! This 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 happy birthday song that's appearing everywhere is using the same exact melody, a hundred percent. Right. And she was able to secure the copyright of "Happy Birthday to You" for her sister and her family. Ah,、uh, okay. In 1934. Okay,、right. so they, they they already had the copyright for "Good Morning to All," but they were able to essentially get "Happy Birthday to You" folded into Covered that. Covered under that. Yes, because everybody was using it. Right. So, due to copyright laws、uh, and weird extension rules and and、mm. whatnot, the Happy Birthday song will not pass into the public domain until 2030. Right,、wow. at the earliest.、Right. At the, the earliest. earliest, because as we know, with a lot of copyright laws, they might like, extend they, it. They might、right. change the law to extend the copyright,、yeah. etc. So we actually all heard this rumor. They're like, "Oh, Happy Birthday is actually not public domain. Right, you're not allowed. Right. Yeah. That is true. That、oh, is、yeah. definitely yeah. true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen well, like at the end of credits in movies, you'll see, you know, the birthday.、Mm. Song, whatever, copyright,、oh, sure. yeah. yeah. And if you go to, if you go to like a small restaurant, like a family-owned restaurant, and they you have a birthday, maybe they'll come out and sing "Happy Birthday to You" illegally.、Yeah. However, but if you ever go to like a big chain restaurant,、Chili's. like a TGI Fridays or whatnot, they will have their own yeah. Yeah. birthday song, a special birthday song that they sing because they, as a big company, don't want to get in trouble. So the Darden Group,、uh, the restaurant group that owns Red Lobster、ah. and Olive Garden,、ah. yeah. required every one of their restaurants,、uh, the different <laughs> restaurant chains that they own, to have their own、yep. special birthday song, so they would not infringe the copyright. I mean,、mm-hmm. so what does this mean? That like, does everybody who sings Happy Birthday to You at parties is is infringing or or doing it illegally? No.、Um, well, it's something no. around. Public performance exactly. Royalties are due when you're using the song for commercial uses. So, like you said, in movies, in TV,、mm. singing it for profit in shows, incorporate into items. So, if you have like those musical greeting cards that you、oh, open、yeah. up,、right. yeah, so you、right. have to pay licensing fees for that. Public performance definitely. So, any performance which occurs, quote. At a place open to the public, or at any place where a substantial number of persons outside of a normal circle of a family and its social acquaintances is gathered. Right. So restaurants, a, arenas,、yeah. sport complex. And now, who owns the rights though? Now it's not the family anymore. It's like some giant media conglomerate that owns the rights now, right? Warner Music. Okay. Right. Right. <laughs>、uh, well, an investment group that that owns Warner Music, Warner slash Chappell, and the company back in 1988 paid. Twenty-five million dollars to acquire a small company whose musical holdings included、mm. the、oh. birthday song. 
I don't think they cared about all the other songs. I'm willing to guess they didn't. It was for the birthday song. Yep, $25 for the birthday song. Yep. And uh, it has been reported that to use the happy birthday song in a film, they charge up to Mm $10,000. Okay. Television shows, $700 per show. They collect approximately $2 million per year just for a happy birthday song. That's just for existing. $2 million a year. And so, yeah, because of the copyright issues, filmmakers rarely show the complete sing-along or they just sub in for he's a jolly good fellow because that is public domain. So they they void the song entirely. Mm. And for clever shows, a lot of clever shows out there, they would sing happy birthday song that's kind of like the birthday song, but not (laughs) really. And I'm going to play one for you guys. (laughs) What day is today? It's Nibbler's birthday. What a day for a birthday. Let's all have some cake. And you smell like one, too. <laughs> that so, was, of course, from Futurama. <laughs> close, close, but no cigar. Yeah, sounds really close. Thank you for taking this journey with me, starting from the Chicago World's Fair to the Happy Birthday song. But yeah, actually, the World's Fair stuff, super interesting, super, super interesting. So have you read a book called um, Devil in the White City? Yes. So this is my segue into our <laughs> uh, sponsorship break, actually. The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson is an awesome, awesome book. And yes. it's, it's available on Audible um, as an audiobook, And it's about the craziness of the Chicago World's Fair, Mm. like of the scandal, I mean, of the triumph of every little nitty gritty, lots of trivia bits here. Um, But it's also true crime. Yeah. Crazy pants, true crime. It's it's really compelling. That would be one of my big uh, audible picks. It's like um, this guy built a murder mansion in Chicago or or near Chicago. People come into town for the World's Fair. God, it was crazy. Okay, so don't listen to this audiobook at night is what you're saying. (laughs) When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I have a music-related quiz for you guys. Yay! It's called Rock on TV, and it has to do with rock stars and TV scandals. Oh. All right. What what does that mean? Well, let's I don't know, but I got my buzzer. All right. Your buzzer's ready. All right. First question. These two rock stars with the same first name were both reported to have thrown TV sets out of the hotel window. Oh. Out of the same hotel's window, but in different rooms. Chris. Elvis Presley and Elvis Costello. Nope. Dang. Oh, uh, God, I thought it was going to be like Oasis or something. Uh, 
these were maybe the first rock stars who ever done that or started the whole like uh, meme of rock stars <laughs> throwing TVs out of hotels. Was one of them the Beatles? Hot mess in the sixties. Hot mess. Nope. No, no, Beatles. no Beatles. Jim. No Jim. Jim. You guys give up? Jerry. No Gene. No. Uh, I give up. Keith Richards uh, and Keith Moon. Keith Moon. Keith Keith Moon. Moon. Both through the television sets out of the same hotel in oh, LA. Nice. Do you know what the name of the hotel was? I guess not. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's the Hyatt on Sunset or the Continental Hyatt. Wow. Is this still there? It's still there. It was in almost like this. It shows <laughs> up in a lot of TV and shows. TVs, yes. Yeah. <laughs> two windows, two different rooms. They both oh, fit okay. it. I wonder if yeah. they have a little plaque or something. It'd be interesting. <laughs> I just a lot of it. crazy things happen in that hotel. You I should bet. check out the Wikipedia entry. <laughs> Elvis Presley got the nickname Elvis the Pelvis after appearing on what TV show? Oh, Colin. I think that was Ed Sullivan's show, right? No. Oh. Really? Nope. Oh, hold on. Oh, God, I remember seeing the, the black and white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the Ed? Oh, yeah, the Beatles. Oh, they didn't the show him on was the... Was it on the Bandstand? Cabot show? What was it? Oh, was it American there? Bandstand? Nope. Uh, no, you don't think he was... It was the Milton Berle show. Oh, really? Do you guys know what song he was singing? I'm Boots all shook shoes. up. It was You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog. Oh. Yeah. I watched the video this morning on YouTube, and I'm like, yeah, sure. There was some pelvis shaking. <laughs> yeah. I could see where the name came from. Ed Sullivan did famously try not to show him dancing oh. in that way from the waist up. Right, from, right. But just when he was doing the dance, they... They did above the waist. <laughs> not that racy. It's not that. I mean, not that racy. It would have curled his hair if he could see <laughs> what people do now. Speaking of controversial TV appearances, Sinead O'Connor was the center of this controversy after appearing on Saturday Night Live for doing what? Uh, uh, Everybody, everybody. ripping up a picture, up a picture of, of the Pope. Pope. Rage Against the Machine was banned from ever appearing on Saturday Night Live. Really? They were scheduled to do two songs, but only ended up doing one. Do you know why? They tore up a picture of Sinead (laughs) O'Connor. No. Is it because uh, they... Profanity? No. They wanted to hang the American flag upside down Mm. on their speakers. And uh, during dress rehearsal, they were told they were not able to do that and, mm. and then the moment before they were cutting to them to perform they did it anyway. the roadies were trying to hang it up and then there was like a scuffle and they were able to they ripped it down <laughs> and then after their performance oh, they said you have to leave the building right now wow yeah and that's why they didn't get to say good night at the end and they were banned from performing on saturday night live yeah which i'm sure they yeah. actually wore as a badge Just of pride from a professionalism yeah. Standpoint. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Ashley Simpson had a calamitous appearance on yes. Saturday Night Live. Yes. yes. When her lip, lip sync track started for the wrong song. Yes. What song started playing? I don't know. Oh, oh man. <laughs> okay. Uh, Frank Sinatra's Luck Be a Lady. <laughs> no. I couldn't, I couldn't name any Ashley Simpson what, what was song? her hit? Autobiography, at that time? Shadow of Me. So, uh, Autobiography was the one that she was supposed to start singing. Holy moly. I'm trying to see if wow. Karen's going to retrieve it. Oh, God. <laughs> this was a question for Karen. What was it? Pieces of Me. P- oh, okay. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah Pieces yeah. of Me. Okay. Madonna's commercial for what soda company enraged Catholics? I think it was oh. Pepsi? Yep. Pepsi. Pepsi. What song? That was Like a Prayer, right? Yeah. People were upset because there were a lot of religious overtones. She had the stigmata. She made out with a saint. Do you guys know which saint she was making out with in that video? Sebastian? The guy- Oh, yeah. I know it was the guy from Cool Runnings. I don't know what saint he was. Basil? Saint, saint Runnings. Saint Runnings. <laughs> saint Jamaica. Martin de Porres, who is who the is patron saint of mixed people. Really? Yes. Hmm. There's well, a, there is a saint for mixed people. Yeah. I guess there is a saint for everything. 
And he was the saint of racial harmony and mixed oh, okay. race people. Oh, well. Yeah. Okay. Justin Timberlake and Janet Jackson stirred up controversy <laughs> with their infamous wardrobe malfunction during the 2004 Super Bowl. What song were they performing? Oh. When the malfunction happened. Geez. Oh, man. Am I lucky enough for it to be nasty boys? I know the line, right? The line is yeah. like, I'll, I'll have you naked by the end of this song. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 Rock your body. Rock your body. Way. Yes. Oh, okay. Thank you, Colin. Teamwork. Wow. Uh, which teams played during that Super Bowl? Oh, man. Patriots and the Rams. Yeah. The Panthers. Panthers. Oh. Patriot, Patriots and Panthers. Patriots and Panthers. Uh. Pasty, Panthers, Patriots. That's wow. That's how you remember it. <laughs> yeah, it got real conservative after that. It was yeah, like... It was like a lot of... <laughs> Paul yeah, McCartney yeah. and... You too. Yeah. 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 People who do not have wardrobe malfunctions yeah. on stage. <laughs> or if they did, it wouldn't be a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Um, Wait a minute. Yes, it was. <laughs> YouTube or Paul McCartney had a wardrobe malfunction. <laughs> anyway, good job, you guys. Wow, thanks. So we've been talking about some things that have happened during the history of uh, music. So I'm going to take you back in time again. Now I finally get to play musical segments. Huh? Oh! I am going to kick this off by playing a musical clip. And I would like you, someone, to buzz in and identify this speaker. Tell Whoa. me who is speaking okay. in this clip. All right. The uh, first words I spoke in the original phonograph. A uh, little piece of practical poetry. Mary had a little lamb, it sprinkled with white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. <laughs> Colin. Is that Thomas Edison? That is Thomas yeah. Alva Edison, the the man himself. Uh, he was speaking on the 50th anniversary of the phonograph, the sound recording and playback device that he invented. It was the year 1927 when mm. he was speaking. Edison's phonograph was the first device that could record a sound, and then you could play it back and listen to it again. Basically what would happen, right, is you'd have like a membrane or a really tightly stretched um, diaphragm, which would vibrate when sounds hit it. It was essentially sort of like our eardrums, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Vibrates, it's attached to a, a stylus or, you know, a very fine kind of needle, which would then vibrate and then it would etch the sound uh, moving up and down on a piece of tin foil that was wrapped around a cylinder. Right. And then you could take that piece of tin foil and essentially reverse the process and recreate the sound that's by how it works? using the tinfoil oh. to vibrate the needle. Yeah, well, that's how a record player works. You know, it's just a groove that vibrates a needle. No, but to record it. Oh, yeah. And then to play it back again. It vibrates oh, in the same way, but it etches it into the tinfoil. Now, this was actually, I just found out, preceded by another device that also recorded sound. And it was invented in 1857 by a guy named Edouard Leon Scott de Martinville, and it was called the Phonoautograph, or Sound Automatic Writer. Edouard Leon Scott de Martinville, Leo Scott, as I'm going to call him for the rest of this, he was actually writing on, though, instead of tinfoil, was a sheet of soot-covered paper. Ah. So you'd take that paper and just sort of lightly trace a line in it with the vibrations of the stylus. It white. Right. Scott was not trying to play any of this stuff back. He wanted to study sound visually. Mm. Mm. He wanted to be able to look at what sound looked like. Quantify so, it somehow. Right. So the phonoautograph, the reason we don't talk about this dude today is because, you know, you didn't play anything back. So it just, it was yeah. just sort of mm -hmm. recording sound, which is cool. 
In 2008, a group of scholars, university professors, were able to reconstruct mm. some of the phonautographs uh, digitally. They used a, it was a virtual stylus. They cool. scanned the image. They got really, really nice versions of the graphing, you know, of the sounds. And they followed the path of the stylus digitally and then created sound waves out of that. Now, this should have actually been impossible since the phonautograph was hand cranked, which means that there should, there would have been a lot of differences in speeds and yeah, variations. And actually that really should have rendered these recordings, um, unproducible because you don't know what the tone is supposed to be. But Scott actually thought ahead with this and did something really clever with his later recordings, which is he included a reference tone. So for all of the recordings that he recorded, while they were doing this, he would play Mm. in another recorder one constant tone that so that you could calibrate, calibrate it again. It. Exactly. So that they can then go back to the ones that have reference tones. So here is one of those recordings, a man, almost surely Scott himself, singing a vocal scale. This sound you're hearing is from the year 1860. Wow. This is one of the very, very earliest recordings we have of a human voice. <laughs> He gets a little faster towards the end because he knows his time is about to run out because he only has so much paper. So he rushes the last note there. Wow. Yeah. And, there's and other he never ones. intended for the, I mean, oh, he didn't think right he was going to ever hear this. So yeah, right. yeah, it was, it was right only and no reading. Uh, now, as I said, we do not have Thomas Edison's original recording of Mary Had a Little Lamb yet. I mean, maybe somebody's going to find it, but it, it is believed that what I'm about to play for you guys right now is the first recording on an Edison-style metal cylinder that was ever something that he intended to actually sell to the public. And this is something that would have been included in a proposed, an idea for a talking doll. Huh. I can, think you, she's can, you tell what, can you tell what that? Now, I'm sorry for turning this into like a horror film. Uh, <laughs> what? Can you Satan. tell what that was? Satan is my lord. Uh, yeah, <laughs> my, my dear sweet Satan. My dear sweet Satan. Can you can you tell what that was? Uh uh-uh. uh. Can't I can't make it out under the oh, okay. static. Yeah. That's very interesting. We'll tell you what it is. It's uh, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Oh. Now Edison wanted to create talking dolls that would say Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. And he had the method by which you could, you know, somebody would speak into a cone and it would vibrate the diaphragm and record a, a, a metal cylinder. But there was no technology at this point to make copies of this. Oh, got it. Edison hired, apparently, two women to be in this recording studio, essentially, the first, essentially, professional recording studio. And these women were, of course, the first professional paid recording voice actors. Right? Artists. And uh, just say Twinkle Twinkle Little Star over and over and over again. Because every time they said it, they could create one cylinder for one doll. 
every time you spoke it, that was one doll, and then you had to do it again for the next doll and again for the next doll. So they're in there eight hours a day just saying Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Oh, I wish you got to see Teddy Ruxpin. He would have been very pleased. Here's a, here's an actual piece of music, and I want you to try to identify the piece of music, and then to tell me, if you know, why this particular piece of music, or the, the larger work of music that this fits into, is important uh, in the history of recorded music. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. A Waltz of the Flower by Tchaikovsky in the Nutcracker. Yes, that's mm-hmm. exactly right. Do you know what the Nutcracker suite, what sort of place of prominence it occupies in uh, in, in recorded musical history or trivia? Uh, uh, ballet. First, or- first orchestra, orchestra recording. Mm. No. First complete set of records. First duplicated or replicate. Is it Colin the, basically has it. Is you this wanna... the first album? Indeed. Yeah. Uh, oh. It's the, the 1908 recording by Odeon Records of the Nutcracker. Cracker Suite in, in general is considered to be the first record album uh, because instead mm-hmm. of just buying one record which has a couple of minutes of songs on each one Got they it. did the whole Nutcracker Suite on four records each of which was inserted into a sleeve which is in a leather bound album hence the phrase a record album, album. I was, a photo I was album really hoping this was going to come up in the show today hey. yeah. Yeah. that's why it's called an album right. yeah like a photo album or yeah Wow. Now, I never in, thought of that. I'm going to play you two more clips. Let's keep in this mindset of famous uh, milestones okay. uh, in the history of recorded music uh, going m- into more modern times. Here is a clip, and I want you to tell me who did this piece of music and what relevance it has to the history or milestones in recorded music. Because you had to be a big shot, didn't you? You had to Colin. Well, that's Billy Joel. Sure is. Big shot. Yes. Okay, I'm just based on the time period, I'm going to guess, was this the first song recorded on a CD? It was! Oh, so, wow! It was not the first re- song ever recorded on a CD, but Billy Joel's album 52nd Street, which began with the song Big Shot, uh, was the first commercially released ah. album on compact disc. That's wow. great. That's October great. 1982 in Japan. Huh. The huh. album itself is from 1978, but it was such a huge hit for Sony's, you know, music group. That's definitely a pub quiz worthy totally. question. Absolutely. Here's something that's a little less pub quiz worthy. <laughs> um, I'm going to play one more track, and again, this is a more dubious honor, perhaps <laughs> a more a more dubious distinction uh, for for this uh, this the album that this that this track was off. Maybe slightly <laughs> right. embarrassing distinction is here. Uh-huh. Uh, Dana. Fleetwood Mac. It is. It's Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. A song called No Questions Asked. Uh, Karen. 
most bootlegged song or pirated song. Uh, no. no. Uh, that would do something to be proud of. First, yeah. first mini-disc song. Uh, not first mini-disc song. No, that would be dubious. Eight track? What about it? Last eight track? You are absolutely nice. right. Wow. Uh, that was off of the album Fleetwood Mac's Greatest Hits. It was only on the Greatest Hits album as a bonus track. Oh. Uh, and Fleetwood Mac's Greatest Hits is considered to be uh, released in November 1988, the last album released by a major label okay. on eight track. What year did you say? 1988. That's really late. At that track. At that point, you had to be ordering it like through a catalog, basically, because stores had generally stopped it. Now, we have a lot of children who listen to this podcast <laughs> kids in eight track is i guess if you were to imagine they don't know about that either i don't even i, I imagine even something the size of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich but on thicker bread <laughs> right plastic and and the eight track um, it's a cartridge it only went forwards yeah yeah so if you wanted to go backwards you couldn't you just had to go to a different part of the tape and listen to those songs instead and then wait for the first part to come around. It was wildly inconvenient. The advantage it had over cassettes, though, was that you, it had random access, meaning that you could jump. You know what I mean? Like, you could jump ahead. To you a, could at you least press jump a button and jump to, yeah, a section. Yes. Chris was mentioning uh, the Edison cylinders. The first ones were, in fact, you know, wrapped with tin around a core. Uh, and then they moved into wax. You know, early on, they were really focused on this as a tool for recording speech. You know, one thought they had is like, oh, maybe this could supplant uh, handwritten letters. You know, you would dictate your letter and send the cylinder across and somebody would have, you know, yeah, or putting it into talking dolls. You know, they were, they were, there was one of those things like, all right, we got this great technology and how do we commercialize it? It was not very long before, hey, we can put music on these things. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, we can put music on them and sell them to people. One of the drawbacks in recording cylinders was that there was no means of mass production. If you wanted three copies of something, you had to record it three times. Yes. If you wanted 50 copies of something, you had to sit and record it <laughs> 50 times. There's no control C. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I mean, again, if you're using this as a replacement for letters, you know, fine, that's not big a deal. But if right. you want to put out Tchaikovsky yeah. or music, yeah. this is a problem. You can't scale up. Wow. Now, you might think this doesn't seem very sustainable. Somebody's got to come up with a better solution than one person, one recorder. So... Come around the 1890s, someone had the brilliant idea. I know. What would you do, Karen? Well, you have the person performing, <laughs> uh-huh. and you just surround them with a lot of... Oh, them. that's <laughs> what they did. That was their solution. Uh, Cram the room. You would get the band or the singer, whoever, and you would literally set up as many phonograph recording devices as you could fit into the room. Yeah. You would you would coordinate them all, all blank. You would flip the switch. So they all start at the same time, and the band would perform. The singer would sing. You know, and you might be able to record as many as a dozen at a time. Right. So this was the solution for a surprisingly long time. Um, (laughs) Eventually, someone someone hit on the idea of using a pantograph. And if you guys know what a pantograph is from drawing, it's the cool device where you attach it to your pen Mm. and there's a little stylus on the other end. And as you draw, it mirrors what you're drawing. That's a real thing. That's a real thing. That's right. Pantograph. I've seen it in cartoons where you write a letter and then there's like a weird R. Right, right. But still, it wasn't really until, you know, the turn of the century that Edison and his uh, factory, got to give him a little bit of credit here, 
Uh, they were one of the uh, the pioneers in really coming up with a reliable reproduction system, which is it's very straightforward. It's they would just make casts and molds, so they would still record the single master cylinder one way, uh, coat it with metal, melt out the wax, and then you can cast new cylinders from the mm-hmm. inside of that one. But I just thought the idea of them sitting in a little room with uh, surrounded by a dozen blanks recording yeah. all at once. Okay, guys, take it again from the top. <laughs> oh. Oh, just shoot me, please. I do not want to play this again. You have to wait for them to set it all up again, too. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Woo, boy. That was a long Woo. journey from the caves of Germany yeah. to Billy Joel. Mm. Uh, that, that might be the, the longest time span we've covered in an episode. Probably. So we got one last quiz segment. Colin, take it away. Yes, I have a quiz for you guys called Let's Go to Work. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like the worst quiz. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to name for you guys a fictional workplace. So this may okay. be a workplace as seen in a TV show or a movie or a book. Most of them are actually from TV. Tell me what setting it comes from. So, for example, if I were to say Dunder Mifflin. The office. You the would office. say the office. Exactly. I think you guys get it. And we're going to do this one as a, a lightning round here. So I'll say it. Buzz in if you think you know it. Okay. Here we go. Get your buzzes ready. Strickland Propane. What? Oh, King of the Hill. King of the Hill. Yes. Nam Peggy. <laughs> <laughs> Sterling Cooper. Uh, this is Mad Men. Yes. Pawtucket Brewery. <laughs> this is oh. Family Guy. Yes, it is Family yes. Guy, where Peter, I believe, works in the later yep. episodes. Yep, yep, yep. Wernham Hogg. This is British Office. Yeah. Yes. Can't get anything past Dana if it's on British TV. The Bluth Company. Arrested Development. Indeed. Inatech. Oh! Office, office Space. Yes, Office yes, Space. Yes, yes, yes. Michael Bolton et al. Yeah. Your name is Michael Bolton? I love his music. <laughs> the Lanford Lunchbox. Oh. Roseanne. Indeed. Yeah. Ewing Oil. Ah. Dallas. Uh, yep. Oh, Jerry. Uh, yeah. McDowell's. Oh, 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 oh. This is, I think this is coming to yes. America. Yes, yes, yes. They have the golden arches. I have the golden arch. <laughs> that was great. They have the Big Mac. I have the Big Mick. <laughs> Bushwood Country Club. Wow. Caddyshack. Indeed. Oh, so good. Zuckerman's Farm. I believe this is Charlotte's Web. Yes, yeah. it is. Wow. Charlotte's Web. Oh, yeah. Yes, Suckerman's pick. Oh. Yeah. The Wayland Utani Corporation. This, well, a lot. Yes. Okay, well. Any one of the. Prometheus. Yes. The, alien. The aliens. Oh, yes. oh okay. Right, oh, they're okay. the evil giant corporation that sends people out to die. Oh, cool. <laughs> the Shinehart Wig Company. 30 Rock. Yes. <laughs> the, the apparent company of NBC. Yeah. Spacely Space Sprockets. The Jetsons. It is the Jetsons. And their rival, do you know, for bonus... Cogswell Cogs. Yes, Cogswell Cogs. I watched a lot of cartoons. (laughs) The Paper Street Soap Company. Fight Club. Yes, Fight Club. Uh, The book and the movie. We'll just call it the book to class it up a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Oh, there's a movie of Fight Club? Sacred Heart Hospital. Oh, it's um, Scrubs. Yes, it yes. is Scrubs. Oh. Sugar Baker Designs. Oh, 
Designing Thank women. You. Yes, designing women. <laughs> Why do we all see? Why do we all look at Chris? Oh, 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 he butts in first. Yeah. Oh, that's when I yeah. think Southern women, <laughs> I think Chris Kohler. It's like, I am a, a proud <laughs> Southern woman. She's smart. The 4077th Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. Uh, <laughs> MASH. Indeed. Yeah. Franken and Hire Architects. Oh. Franken and Hire. This is a literary. Architects. Oh. 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 Fountainhead. Correct. Oh. I was like, what book is about architecture? <laughs> nice. That yeah. one. Close it out with my favorite fictional workplace. All right. You listed some good ones already, yeah. so I'm I'm psyched. Vandalay Industries. Uh, <laughs> Seinfeld. It is Seinfeld. Yeah. This is George's fake company whenever he needs a fake employer. <laughs> good job, guys. I think you got wow. every single one there. Yeah, yeah. Well done. Well, that is our show. Thank you guys for joining me. Thank you guys, listeners, for listening in. Hope you learned a lot about fictional workplaces, but more importantly, our big journey of music from the caves of Germany to the eight tracks, to scandals on TV, to the Chicago World's Fair, to happy birthday, everything, a lot, covered a lot. And you can find us on iTunes, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, and also our website, goodjobbrain.com. And check out our sponsor, Audible. And uh, we also have our page up, so now you can see our book recommendations. And uh, yeah, we'll see you guys next week. Bye. 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 Oh, sure, my friend. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.